Welcome to the Today's Market Explained podcast. I am your host, Brian Castle, and with me, as always, is the amazing co-host, Chris Reardon. Chris is the Director of Development, and I'm the CEO and founder of Four Star Wealth Advisors. Our promise with this show is to share the most important investment opportunities that we are seeing in ways that are easy to understand and hopefully even easier for you to benefit from so you can make money quickly and easily by investing. Each episode will detail the most important market updates and how best to benefit from them. And we will also be interviewing subject matter experts who can give insights into new and exciting markets and other investment opportunities. So to maximize every episode's value, please go to todaysmarketexplained.com to download, quote, 65 investment terms you must know to crush your financial goals, unquote. Trust us, this free gift will be your cheat sheet for reaching your financial goals in the shortest possible time. And to see all the best and most valuable moments from this episode, please go to Today's Market Explained on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Now, let's see what's happening in the financial markets. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming on. My name is Angus Baker. Uh, I am the active CIO of a company, a Midland-based company called Montego Minerals. Uh, Montego specializes, is from Midland, Texas. We've been there since 1954. We are a family-owned business and a family office that has spent 74 years in the oil patch. Um, Our leader, Monty Gist, G-I-S-T is their last name. Um, You can see it to the far right. Monty moved from Sweetwater, Oklahoma to Midland, Texas in 1954 after graduating with Boone Pickens from Oklahoma State University. Um, He became a geologist for Humble Oil at the time. The person in the middle is our leader, uh, Rhett Gist. Rhett is dual majored educationally in um, engineer and geologist. Uh, geology masters in reserve engineering and to the far your far left is cutler guest who is also an engineer um, and cutler's mom and red's wife is also an engineer so um i want you to know that these are the people who are stewards of your money of your investment these are the people that we rely on um, and they've been in the oil business now for 74 years They've been based in the heart of the Permian Basin, which is where they do most of the acquisitions. Um, However, we will sometimes venture over to East Texas to look for natural gas properties. If you look at this map right here, um, every area that is in uh, beige is an oil basin in the United States. And the two, the largest basin, um, not just in the United States, but in the world, or I should say the largest reserves, um, is the Permian Basin and it's right in our backyard. So a lot of these people that we have grown up with, um, grandfathers, fathers, sons, grandsons, um, we've been in the network of the Permian Basin for 74 years and it tends to be who we follow. I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we go along. Um, Royalties, we're gonna talk today about minerals and royalties. Um, the Gist family has been, as I said, has been in the business for over 74 years. They've been on every side of the oil and gas business that you can think of, all of it. 
Um, but 20 years ago, they decided that they were getting tired of being broke every 10 years from a price correction. And they turned their focus to the more conservative side of royalties and minerals. They noticed that during the years that they were operators and drillers and uh, working interest investors, that no matter how much net profit there was to the operator, that the first check that the operators wrote every single month off of gross production, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, was to the royalty owners. So during a time of correction, which we just went through in 2020, uh, royalty owners do take a little bit of hit on their yield, but working interest owners, basically it's a matter of whether they even survive or not. So for the last 20 years, we have been uh, acquiring and collecting minerals and royalties all around the United States, not just for our family, but for family and friends in Midland. Um, and, and we now have brought, as of 2018, we have now brought the opportunity to you folks um, and your clients. And we'll talk a little bit more about the reasons why we do that and the advantages and benefits of royalty minerals. But they've been around for over 100 years. And they didn't come to the market, to the public market, until 2005. I was actually with that company and part of that team that originally rolled out these assets um, to people who were what we call layman oil and gas people. Uh, you would have never had another chance to buy this asset class had that company not have rolled it out. But before then, this asset class was being acquired by uh, the companies that operated uh, lots of high net worth families, Rockefellers, Fords, Hearst, Kennedys, Vanderbilts, um, and also industry insiders, people who were engineers, geologists. Uh, they were all being kind of hoarded, for lack of a better word. Today, when we look at who owns them, um, it is actually spread to institutions like st the Harvard Endowment and the Stanford Endowment and the Yale Endowment. Um, and if you know the mentality of those endowments, they are not very risk tolerant. Uh, but for some reason, they have not millions, but billions of dollars in their endowments because this asset class produces income. And that income helps subsidize their scholarship programs in their universities. The other, the last but not least on the screen is that by the time you get to buy into this, on the properties that we acquire, typically somebody, an entity or a person, has not only spent millions of dollars, sometimes billions of dollars to create, we have enough history now over time to make a great prediction of the future. Here's the number one question we get. Um, what's the risk if I invest in this asset class? And here the two risks are, and there is, yes, only two. There is gross production, which means top line revenue. Every drop of oil and gas that comes from the ground times the price that the operator received at the wellhead times your undivided interest equals your yield. It's very, very simple. So I want to talk a little bit briefly about price. Um, and I could basically sum it up in one sentence. If you're listening to this and you believe that oil will average $50 a barrel for the next 50 years, 
we can take this element out of the risk formula because everything that we buy, we predict and, and estimate that every drop of oil that comes out of the ground in the future will come out at $50 a barrel. If it comes out lower, obviously, um, we've missed by a little bit. If it comes out higher, obviously, we've missed by a little bit. That tends to um, even itself out over time. So one more slide about price. Um, price is controlled by supply and demand and supply and demand only. I know people here, I get a lot of questions and a lot of hands go up after I say that. But I'm talking about long-term price. You might say, well, other things, you know, wars and geopolitical issues and alternative energy and winter, spring, summer, fall, hype, speculation, fear, all that you're right. Hurricanes, all those things do affect the price of oil and gas, but only short term. And because we're buying legacy assets, assets that will last for decades and in some cases generations, we really only want to focus on long term pricing, which is supply and demand. And supply and demand is driven by predominantly the world population. This was the world population, a, a picture from NASA of the Earth, of the electrical use across the globe in 1970 when the population was 3.6 billion people. Oops, I need to update my 2018. It's supposed to say 2021, but the population now is at 7.7 billion. So it took some 50 years to double basically in population growth. And this is what happened when rural countries, if you go back and look right in here, look at India and look at China. If you go back and look at the way they were 50 years ago, there wasn't a light on. Now um, it's lit up like a Christmas tree. And as a matter of fact, in the mid 2000s, when China was you know, a decade into their growth, um, there was a stat that came out that 10,000 cars a day hit the road in China for the very first time, every day. And all that all it means basically is the, the greater the population, the more barrels of oil and natural gas are being consumed. That's the bottom line. Now, it took 50 years to double, and that double was, you know, 4 billion people, and the EIA estimates that by 2035, the world population will be 11 billion people. So it's going to do it again. And that's just going to um, increase demand globally, which should have a strong effect on upward pricing. But remember, we don't play the game. Everything we buy, we evaluate dollars in and dollars out at $50 a barrel. The next question I get is, what's the difference between the drilling program I did and buying royalty interest and mineral interest? I want to show you a few of those. Working interest is paid off of net production or net revenue. Gross revenue comes out, expenses are applied, net profit is left, net profit is distributed to the investors. You might not know how big this is, but we're paid off of gross revenue or gross production. Every drop of oil and gas, we get our undivided interest long before they apply their expenses to their net profit. Next, working interest burdens 100% of the cost 
of doing business in the oil patch, drilling, maintenance, repair, um, all that falls burdens on the working interest people. Royalty interest people pay zero cost. So this asset class, these are the two things I want you to walk away with most. We get paid off of the top line and there are no more future capital calls ever. The cash flow is one way to the investor from the time they invest to the time they sell. Um, next is liability. People we see in wealth preservation mode, which is really what this asset is about, um, burden 100% of the liability. People talk about bodily injury, tort liability, uh, blowouts, things that happen in the oil patch that hurt people. Um, that liability falls 100% on the working interest and zero liability to the royalty interest. So you'll never have to worry about uh, losing your, your wealth in the court of law, uh, wealth that took you 20, 30, 40 years to build will never go away due to uh, liability in the court of law. Working interest considered high risk, high return. Royalty interest is considered low risk, moderate return. We'll show you how we come up with low risk um, shortly. Uh, a lot of people flock to working interest because of the 100% tax advantage. Uh, I strongly recommend everybody do that if they can, but just make sure that your investment creates an income stream. Um, I get this question all the time. I get this, um, as a matter of fact, I've, I've spoken several times in New York in front of hundreds of people. And one night, one day I was speaking and a person in the crowd, after I was going through this slide, ask a question in the middle of my um, in the middle of my presentation. And he said, say, let me ask you a question. I said, why would I do your asset class when the guy that just spoke before you said, I could write off 100% of my investment against my income? And I he said, why would I do yours instead of theirs? And I said, well, first, um, we're, let me just put it this way. We're not in the business of giving tax credits, even though we do have one. Um, we're not in the business of tax advantages. We're in the business of income. We're in the business of giving 1099s, not, not tax credits. So on their side, you write off 100% of your investment, and then you use the depletion allowance on the income. On our side, and we're the only sponsor that does this, we use a tax advantage the IRS allows us called cost depletion. It works just like depreciation does to real estate owners. If in a year like 2020, where our properties depleted because of no growth and production being cut back, that always happens in a low price environment. When properties deplete, and ours did to the tune of about 20%, um, we get to write off that percentage against our principal investment. So if you invested $100,000 in our asset and the property depleted by 20%, you can cover $20,000 of income, whether it's from our investment or any other investment. You can use it, it passes through to other investments. So our properties only produced a 5% income in 2020 because of the low price and the depletion. And so we covered that 5%, so there was no tax paid on it at all. And they got another $15,000 tax advantage on any other income that they have coming in uh, that covered them for that year based on their investment in our asset class.
So we consider working interests wealth creation, and we consider royalty interests wealth preservation. Um, we see most of the people, the prime candidate is people who are eyeballing retirement, ready to stick an umbrella in their drink. And they wanna to try to figure out how to subsidize with income, the lifestyle they were used to living when they were working. So they'll invest in our asset class and we pay monthly, just like a paycheck. And um, they try to build their investment in our asset class to create the kind of income they were making when they were working um, so that they can subsidize the life they were used to living. So um, there's a little bit of the difference. There's the risk. Um, now I want to talk about how we as Montego and as engineers and geologists, this is an exercise that we go through on every property that someone shows us. The first thing we look for is stability. Stability, you can you can test that by cash flow, or you can, but we test it by gross production. How many barrels of oil and gas did this property produce in, in the past? And we create a, a graph, I'll show you in just a minute. Next, we engineer how much longer the property is gonna last. And then we, we check to see if the property is diversified. And it, diversification comes in three ways. It comes from the commodity itself. And typically we diversify 70% oil, 30% natural gas. We're a little more bullish on natural gas uh, the last year or so. And we've proven to be correct because natural gas has done great. And a lot of natural gas properties have really rebounded since, the, since, to, since 2020. Diversification comes operationally. Uh, remember I told you that um, we pay no expenses. So the operators are the people who cover all the expenses for us. So we like to diversify into multiple operators. And last, uh, diversification comes from geographical. One of the mistakes you can make in our business is buying in one geographical area under one operator in one small acreage position. Um, and that's because oil and gas is a true depleting asset. And you have to have a growth component to offset the depletion. Um, as I told you a while ago, uh, 2020 was, uh, we depleted 20%, our properties depleted close to 20% in 2020. That's because there was no growth. And that'll happen every single property in America. As a matter of fact, growth, gross production in America hit a high of 13 million barrels, 8 12.86 to be exact, 12,860,000 in November of 2019. And at the low point of 2020, we were down to 9.5 million barrels. So there's your 33% depletion. And that's what happens when there's no growth. There was zero growth in 2020. So it's always important when you buy a mineral and royalty property that you have a growth component. We'll talk about that in just a second. And last but not least is yield. So here's an example of these characteristics in Montego Capital Fund 3. Montego Capital Fund 3 is three and a half years old. It's returned about 38% of our investors' principal. And last month, it was at a 15% annualized return based on a lot of new growth that has happened over the last few months. 
But in that fund, it has over 1,300 producing wells. For those folks that are in real estate, that 1,300 number is how many tenants we have. Every one of those 1,300 wells pay us rent. They pay us every single month. And they pay us off of gross production, not net profit. As they add new wells, uh, those tenants tend to increase um, every single year based on how many new wells they drill. The engineering showed that that fund would produce for over 50 more years. It was diversified with over 100 different properties that were aggregated by us. Um, it had over 107,000 acres, which means that anything that happens underneath that acreage, we participate in. So if any drop of oil or gas comes from that gross acreage, um, we participate. And that is a 1,900 net acres. That simply is dividing the 107 by your undivided interest. It had 70% oil, 30% natural gas. It was in multiple, I think, seven different basins. And it had over 30 different operators. That means that those 30 operators, we're going to get a slice of their CapEx budgets every single year at no cost to us that they will be spending. And that comes out to millions, if not billions of dollars sometimes, throwing at your asset um, on your behalf with no participation from us. And this property had over a thousand new wells to be drilled in the future. So I'm gonna talk about these briefly. This is how we look at stability. This is a production curve from a well in the Permian. Um, if you see a production curve from a shell play, like the Balkan, like the Niobrea, like the Eagleford, those wells will typically decline 70 to 80% in the first two to three years. But a Permian is not tight rock. The Permian is tight sand. And they have a completely different de de decline curve. Now, when you see things drop, like you see this sudden drop right here in the production, that simply is basically when they took the well offline and the production just stopped because they were doing some maintenance to it. And then they bring it back online very shortly after. And then it starts to produce again. And every time it goes down, but every almost every time it goes down, you see a spike following. Spike. Here's another spike. Here's a big spike. Um, so if you look at this, it gives us an idea of how the decline rates are, and that's very important when we go to do our engineering on longevity. Here's the operational diversification. These are the operators, a few of the operators in that fund. Uh, Diamondback, Pioneer, and Parsley are the three that we actually follow the most. Pioneer and Parsley are the two biggest that we follow. As a matter of fact, the granddads, the dads, the sons, and the grandsons, as I said earlier, are very close related to the family that runs Pioneer. Um, Pioneer and Parsley actually merged in the summer of 2020 during the downturn for $4.5 billion. Pioneer and Parsley are in the same family as well. The father owns Pioneer. The son started Parsley years ago, and they finally merged. Uh, I guess it's nice to always keep $4.5 in the family. But other people like XTO, ConocoPhillips, Hunt Petroleum, Mewborn, which you guys are probably familiar with, we buy a lot of minerals under those because just like we have to be good stewards of your investment, these people have to be good stewards of our investment. 
So we look to those who um, have great track records and have great balance sheets and really and truly don't use a lot of leverage, um, especially at times like 2020. That's the time that people really get hurt. And by the way, there's no leverage on our investment. That's a cardinal sin in our business. Those people who use leverage in royalties and minerals tend to get caught in the trap because in a downturn, sometimes the income can go to a point where it might not cover the debt. Um, here's the geographical diversification of that fund. Um, we were in four counties in the Permian. We were in four counties in East Texas, primarily oil from from uh, the Permian and natural gas is where we go to find, uh, we, East Texas is the biggest natural, one of the, well, not the biggest, the Marcellus is the biggest. Uh, Marcellus, you guys might not know this, but the Marcellus has enough oil and gas, or enough gas, natural gas, to supply the United States for several hundred years. It's huge. That's the reason that the price of oil and natural gas for for 70, 80 years ran in relation to the price of oil. Typically six to one was the ratio. Um, but after they found the Marcellus, the natural gas prices tanked while oil went to a, to a high uh, and natural gas prices are just now starting to rebound. But this and- um, so, so, so Angus, can I ask you a question real quick? At, absolutely. So you may not have the answer to this. This may be a general question, but um, if if there's enough oil there to last us, how long did you say? Oh, like a natural years? Add natural gas. Oh, oh, gotcha. To last us about how long? A couple hundred years. So, so then if that's true, then are we still so for natural gas? Are we still net importers or are we exporters of that? Or no, we're exporters of natural gas. Okay. As a matter, I was going to say because. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you brought the question up. Um, the Asian countries pay around, we pay right now, I think natural gas, I haven't seen it in a few days, but it's just a hair above $3 an MCF per million uh, cubic feet. Mm -hmm. And, but over 2019, I mean, 20, 2020, we saw it go as low as a dollar. And that really, really wow. hurt. It's all based on supply and demand. We have so much natural gas, but, if you look at the lack of production in natural gas over the last year, we're in trouble. We're now actually below, and we're very at a very critical point. How many years do you think, the United, I mean, how many days do you think the United States could go if we turned off every natural gas well in the United States? We would run out of natural gas in 26 days. Wow. And anytime, typically, the um, average is above 30, typically 30 to 35 days of supply, of emergency supply, if production stopped. But because we've had a low production rate in 2020, everybody stopped drilling in 2020. It was a historical uh -huh. year for oil and gas, historical for the most supply we've ever had, historical for the less demand we've ever had, historical for uh the amount of rigs that we're drilling uh there were four things that happened in 2020 that hit historical uh periods in in the oil and gas business so that was the reason so 
When you look at, and before, basically back during the last administration, we were exporting and liquefying natural gas because all the other countries, Asian countries pay, you know, $14, $15 in MCF. Now remember, we were paying one, now we're paying three. Uh, European countries pay $13, $14 in MCF. Um, for all those solar and for all those wind lovers, um, the, the cost of getting electricity through wind is $18 a kilowatt. And that is subsidized by our government. If the government ever took the subsidy away, solar would have no chance of being economical. Uh, but because of the government subsidy, and if you know what you're paying at your house, typically you're paying $9 to $11 a kilowatt hour. And solar, the cost of getting electricity from solar is $18 a kilowatt hour. So, and solar and wind um, make up about 8% of our total, of our total electricity production. Um, so if, for all those people who talk about alternative energy, solar and wind replacing fossil fuels, um, they have to replace the other 90%. So I don't believe that gonna happen for a while, if ever. Um, liquefying natural gas would be fabulous for the United States. And we were doing that in the last administration. We were doing that during the Bush administration. Uh, companies like um, Chenier and Marathon were building, were doubling the fleets of tankers to carry natural, to liquefy natural gas and carry it to countries in Asia and in Europe. But um, during the Obama administration that was stopped and halted due to regulations, and it started to rev back up again. But I think that would be fabulous for the United States to have that as one of our biggest, if not the biggest, export item um, to places around. The, and it would and it would also create a little more safety. Um, if Russia ever decided to turn their pipeline off, uh, Europe would have no electricity. So it would be great for royalty owners if if the liquefying of natural gas. Um, which has been revving back up, well, was until recently, um, would rev back up and that became one of our major products that we exported. The growth component in that fund basically had 1,500 new wells to drill in the Permian and it had over 2,100 new wells to drill. Um, folks, it will take decades to drill that many wells. So be comfortable that when we buy a property, we have not just months or years of growth, but we also have decades of growth and over those decades, it's proven that technology, advantages in technology are helping us um, figure out how to recover more of the oil and gas from the wells we drill in what we call primary uh, recovery effort. There's, in the Permian, there's, eight, there's two to eight more zones um, in the ground, which we call pay zones, that are set to have, that are said to have hydrocarbons. Um, but have not been harvested yet. So that's another growth component in the future. Refracking wells is another growth component. And then you have secondary and tertiary recovery methods, uh, but that will probably only benefit your kids or your grandkids, because that's typically a long and expensive process at no cost to us, by the way. So here, I'm gonna close with a couple of the benefits that we see when people ask, what do I get if I invest? Let me show you a few ways this helps. Current income is the number one way. Uh, current, everybody's looking for income, right? 
and everybody's looking for some return. The globe has been starving for a yield for 15 years. And minerals and royalties, uh, as I told you, just came to the market in 2005 for the layman or for the broker-dealer world to show to their clients. The price of minerals and royalties have doubled since then because of how many people have come into the space. Um, private equity money, institutional money, uh, the real estate world and the 1031 code, once they figured out that you could go from bricks and mortar to royalties and minerals, uh, the defer was the victory. And then to add, not only get to I defer my gains, but I also get monthly income and I also get a shelter on that monthly income kind of is a double dipper in, in the tax advantage. Um, it's non-correlated to everything else you own. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a lot of talk about this right now of other industries, um, maybe being in a bubble, is the stock market gonna correct? Is the real estate market gonna stop? All of that doesn't matter to us. What, what we're completely non-correlated to those markets. We're also hard asset diversification. Um, everybody's talking about gold and silver right now. Go to, go to precious metals for your wealth preservation or your asset diversification. We are also a hard asset. The only difference between us and uh, gold and silver is that gold and silver, you're just simply trying to save what you've earned. Uh, but we actually produce monthly income where gold and silver does not. Um, so we're a great place for hard asset diversification. We're also an inflation hedge, which is another thing that everybody's talking about. Um, when the cost of goods and services go up, so does the price of commodities, almost equal to, if not greater than that inflation. So um, if you drive a suburban like I do and you live in Texas, we loved it when gas was $1.87. Um, here now it's at $3. So, but the good news is when I pay more to fill up my Suburban and I get my check out of my mailbox every month or direct deposit into my account, I see an increase equal if not greater than I saw the pump in my check. So it's a great inflation hedge. No, li no liability risk, another great uh, characteristic for wealth preservation. And here I think is the most important one. There's no more cash calls um, and no more maintenance costs. So I wanna bring up one more slide if I may, and I'm almost finished. Come on, baby. Hang on just a minute. I want to talk a little bit about price here because people don't realize this. I'm sorry, my computer's tad slow. I did, it was up a minute ago. There we go. All right, this is a this is a historical price of oil and gas going back 70 years. You can follow the line with me. Wasn't there wasn't much need for oil back in these days? And then all of a sudden you get into your oil embargo and you had this big spike. And then you come to 1985 and it goes back to the dundrums of just creeping along. But I want to show you this because, okay, come on. I want to, I want to go back 20 years instead of 70 years. 
because it wasn't until 2000 and 2000 that we discovered fracking. And that's where this starts. It starts over here at $40 in MCF. Now, I want to just move this along for a minute until I get somewhere around. There we go. There's $50 a barrel. Remember I told you in the very beginning that we evaluate everything in the future at $50 a barrel? I wanted to, this is why. This is, this is, my arrow is at the $50 mark, as you can see. Now, look how many times in the last 20 years that the price of oil dipped below 50. Not many. And look how many times it stayed below 50. So the last thing I want to tell you is don't let this scare you. We are the only industry that self-corrects, which means that if prices drop based on supply being high and demand being low, we just shut down. The rigs shut down, they lay people off, and all of a sudden they get this big decline in production, and then supply and demand get out of whack. And then look what happens every time it crashes. I won't call this a crash, but look where it goes from here. Starting in 2003, it's going to go on up. It finally hits a high. This is not a real, this is not sustainable. This is after some geopolitical issue and hurricanes coming through. It'll correct itself when it goes that high. It'll correct itself also. And then it drops in a matter of months to 57. So now it goes and it doesn't go below 50. Now it starts back up. And this is the recession. This is where the Great Recession hit. Back in 2008, right? Here's about when it started. And here's about when we were coming out of it. So look what happens when we come out of it. Most people don't realize that for these four years, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, we were at $100 a barrel. Do you know what happens to your investment when you, with, with us, when you four year run? At hundred dollars a barrel, it doubles. It doubles for it doubles the the income. It also causes the operators to increase production as fast as possible, because those operators want um, as much oil to come out as hundred dollars a barrel as they can. So here we go to another crash. Right, 2014, 2015 was the next drop in price. It stayed for one year. And now it starts to rebound again. And now we're back up into, you know, we're back up into, here's the crash of COVID. It got down to as low as 19. And it and look how long, quick we told people that within nine months, it would start to rebound. And here we are a year later and we're, we've rebounded back to where it was. Now it's even gone higher. So the question is, how high is it going to go? Um, a lot of people were, we told people a year ago that it depends on how much it corrects. And a year ago, we told people that it would last about nine to 12 months. And if they did, if it, if it went too low and the drilling rigs got too low, that we would overcorrect. And that's what we've done. And now we're in a terrible position with supply, new supply, new growth. And we told people that we'd go to 100. And it looks like we're going that direction. Everybody has their own opinions. But I watch, I watch daily production and daily consumption 
every week and the numbers are just getting worse. So now that we're below that 26 days average of supply, that typically says that we're gonna get a tremendous spike um, and it looks like to 100 we're going. So I'm all done here. I'm gonna go back. Let me stop sharing my screen. All right, here we go. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you very much um, for giving me that time to do that. I'm more than welcome to take any questions at this point that you like. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I so I guess one of I have another question. So would you? And this is this was kind of something that I was thinking about not too long ago. So basically, during COVID, because so many people were using or were not traveling and were not using oil, like you said so much of it shut down just because, you know, rather than wasting it, I mean, they were running out of places to store all the oil. I mean, they were using aircraft carriers, all that stuff. They were running out of space. And so they shut it down so that there was about half as much of the actual wells, half as many of the actual wells in the country actually operating and producing oil. So they shut them down. And then now there, it kind of created almost a lag. And that's that's why, like you just said, that's kind of where that this terrible position for supply is coming from because they had shut down. And now that everything has rebounded so quickly, they just, they weren't ready. Is right. that kind of, kind of right? Well, what happens is it, it's very, it's very, it doesn't take very long to lay people off and bring all the equipment back to the yard. It takes a long time to rehire those people and get that equipment back out there. Plus, mm -hmm. um, the last thing an operating company is going to do is to go back out there too quick because they just they're just trying to survive. But you're exactly right. What happened was during the Trump administration, when they took off the regulations in the oil and gas business, um, they opened up a lot of room to drill across the United States. And we were drilling like gangbusters. That's the reason the price was so low during the Trump administration. And as royalty owners, we didn't really like that low price. We like to have a little higher price, but we got a boost in production during that time. So we still saw an increase in growth in our asset, in our principal, and we still saw a growth in, in our yield based on production, even though price was low. But you had high supply, and then all of a sudden COVID came in and the United States, the, the global consumption went from 101 million barrels a day to 65 million barrels a day. And at the same time that, as you just said, every tanker was full, every railroad car was full, every truck was full. There were 20 to 30 tankers setting offshore uh, and not wanting to come to, to port because they didn't want to sell their oil at that price. And it's not unusual to see a contango like that, but this one was so bad. Um, we have 600 million barrels of storage in the United States. And we actually got to 580 something million barrels in storage. That's the highest we've ever been. So anytime supply gets that high, um, then the price is gonna fall. So, but look now, one year later and 
we're now pulling storage is down to 400 million barrels. So we've taken 180 million barrels out of storage in one year. Um, production has gone from 13 million barrels a day to 9.5. We're now back to almost 11. Um, but but demand has gone back up to where it was pre-COVID. So now we're draining supply faster than we're drilling. So now we're seeing a high price environment where we saw a crunch period of about nine to 12 months. It looks like we're set up for a two to three to four years of, of a supply issue now. And as a royalty owner, um, that's music to our ears because $100 oil just means we make a little more money uh, on our investment. <laughs> Not that we like the situation, um, because we'd read, but now they're going to start to see drilling pick up. Um, and this is the best of both scenarios. Over the next couple of years, operators are going to start putting, hiring, rehiring people and starting to put the drilling rigs back out into the fields. And the prices are going to be at 80, 90, or $100 a barrel. And then production is going to start ramping up. And it's going to take a couple of years to replenish the supply. And we're going to get high prices and a growth component at the same time. And that's a, that's a double bubble for royalty owners. We get a little boost in price and a little boost in production. So our yields should be wow. high. Mark, I see that you raised your hand. Do you have a question? I think I just unmuted you. Yeah, during the, um, the supply a year ago when, when supply was being shut in, whether it was oil or gas or whatever, um, how quickly can they, you know, rework a well to get it producing again? You're not drilling a new one, but it's been shut in. So, or it hasn't been finished or what do they call it? Completed and, and all that. We how quickly have, can, have, can they uh, get those back up? Why? Yeah. And there's, there's a couple of different categories that you just mentioned. An old vertical well, from the 50s and 60s that's still producing two barrels a day, um, they turn those wells off. You don't turn all your oil and gas wells off. You don't do that. You'll, you'll ruin the well. What you do is you choke them back because you still need the fluid to go through the well um, and stay lubricated. So what they do is they, they call it, they don't call it turning them off, they call it choking them back. And they choke them back to where there's still movement uh, but very, very little movement. The ones that they shut down, they'll probably just go ahead and abandon and plug. Those are probably wells that weren't really contributing to the revenue side. Um, so those they can turn off. Now, the other thing you mentioned were um, what's called DUCS, D-U-C. That stands for, that's an acronym that stands for drilled but uncompleted. So as you saw them drill, as fast as they could in 2019. And all of a sudden COVID and, and not only COVID, but the what COVID really did cause some fall in price, but what really hurt was when Saudi Arabia and Russia decided to um, see who was bigger. And they poured a bunch of 5 million barrels on the market at the time when the supply was high. And a month after COVID was, beginning to come to our shores and it was kind of a perfect storm uh, so what they do is they 
they drill wells, but they don't complete them, which means they just cap them and they wait until the price of the commodity gets back to a higher level. And then they come in and complete them. Um, it's much, much less risky to wait to complete them after the correction than it is to uh, complete them and then choke them back. So what they did, and there were hundreds and hundreds of wells that were ducks. And so in the ramp up period, they go back to the ducks first and they complete those, which is why we've gone from 9.5 million barrels a day to 11 million barrels a day. Our rig count now is back up to about 465. That is about 100 of those are drilling for natural gas and almost 300 and something or 360, 370 are drilling for oil. Uh, that got down to 375, I mean 175 at the low point with about 100 drilling for oil and 75 drilling for natural gas. So the rig count is not back up to where we need it. The United States needs about 600 rigs to drill every day to keep production and consumption equal. And if there's not that many rigs drilling, then you're going to see decline in production. We just saw it last month. Um, we were at 11.4 million barrels a day a month ago, and today we're at 11.1. So we saw over the last month a 300,000 decrease, and that's simply a sign that they're, not, they're still not ready to go spend the dollars. Now, you got to remember that the operating companies saved their CapEx budgets during the downturn, and they operated off of free-flowing cash flow from the wells that were producing. But their free-flowing cash flow went down based on price and production. Um, so they're not going to spend a lot of money to just rush out and put everything back up as fast as they can, nor can they, because they don't have the manpower right this minute. They've got to rehire a lot of those people. And every single time this happens, which is once about every 10 years, a lot of those people leave the industry for good and don't ever come back. So they lose part of their workforce during a correction. And so what takes about a year, what takes about six months to pull down, takes about two years to three years to really get back as far as the numbers go to manpower and, and drilling rigs. How does that affect the ownership of the royalties, either by extending it or do you rotate through ownership of different um, royalty cash flows? Um, or, you know, I, if, I, if my client buys in today, should they look to be getting out in five to eight years because of in the next cycle? Well, royalty owners don't... I've been collecting royalties myself and my family for 20 years. Um, the Gist family has been doing it for quite a bit longer. As a matter of fact, they said the other day that this is their fourth downturn. And this is my third downturn. Um, so you don't really plan to get out. Um, the liquidity strategy or exit strategy, most mineral, the mindset of most mineral owners are to buy and hold. Um, for all those people who are itchy about the exit, um, you, you have an independence of everybody else that owns the property. So you can actually sell it whenever you want to. There's multiple ways to do it. Um, but we, we try to, to set the, mind, the mentality of everybody that invests with us, that if you're coming here looking to, 
only invest in this for a year or two and get out. That's not the right kind. You haven't given it time for the growth component to appreciate the asset. So we ask people if you can be patient for that five to seven year period that we believe you will see a growth component take place in that amount of time that will push our yields up. Um, typically they go up to a point or two a year. Um, right now they're back at around, for the property that we're currently offering, and uh, you're gonna break my tradition, I usually don't talk about yields. Um, we're not, we were gonna bring this out in November of 2019, oil was at $60 a barrel. Our cash on cash return was at 8%. Um, if you wanna ask what the worst thing that can ever happen in this investment, all I have to say now is 2020. Uh, the property that we're offering now, um, it, at the end of 2020, delivered a 5% cash on cash yield with 100% tax shelter so at about a six and a half to seven percent tax equivalent yield, and that's the worst thing that could happen to that property. Now um, we need more drilling rigs to come out. We need more manpower to get back out in the field. The returns now are around Montego. The the property right now has not rebounded quite as much as some of the other properties, um, but we're now at about six percent but we're expecting that to start growing uh, very slowly over the next few months and obviously over the next few years. But I think if you'll hold a property like that for about five years, then you'll see, assuming that oil is above $50 a barrel, uh, that you'll see you know, a double digit yield. And at that point, um, we hope that the yield is high enough for someone to say, um, if I sell this, where would I replace this return? Um, but you don't have to be the, the real true royalty collectors like this family, like my, my family, like many other families, Stanford, Yale, Harvard. They're not buying to, to flip or trade. They're buying to hold. So this is a great question for me to close with too. The mentality that we have as your sponsor is to buy properties and to manage properties that get your principal back as fast as possible. And then we believe that you're sitting on an income stream that'll last for not only decades, but in some cases, generations. And at that point, um, you're, 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 you're risk-free of your investment because you've got it back in your pocket. And uh, at that point, you can decide to do what you want to do with it. But most royalty collectors buy to hold um, and not to sell. Because there's things that could happen five to 10 years from now that could really create some appreciation in these properties. And if you sell too quick, um, you'll miss that appreciation in the principle. But you should always be able to sell and get your initial investment back at par, always. Yeah. Does anyone else have any questions? No, I think, so I guess, uh, Angus, did you have anything else or? No, I'm all good. I know we're I'm all good. I, I just, we're getting I want to say I appreciate little, the time and, um, and the effort to, 
take a little deeper dive into, into Montego Minerals. And I look forward to the day that um, you guys need us for some business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know it's something we've definitely talked about quite a bit lately. And I mean, the story is great and the investment's awesome. And it's a very unique time in the oil and gas world, I guess. So, um, so yeah, we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. And I'm sure we'll be, we'll definitely be in touch in the near future. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Have a great right. day. Everyone. Thanks, Angus. Yeah, everyone have a great day. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about maximizing your stock market returns with the least amount of time and effort, please go to todaysmarketexplained.com and download our free guide on the 65 investment terms you must know to crush your financial goals. If you felt any benefit from this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this with anyone you think will also find value and benefit from this. And please follow Today's Market Explained on TikTok TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube to see all the short video clips covering the most valuable moments from today's episode. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We can't wait to tell you everything we're seeing in the financial investment markets. This podcast is provided by Four Star Wealth Advisors for the general uh, public and general information purposes only. The information is not considered to be an offer to buy or sell any securities or investments. Investing involves the risk of loss and investors should be prepared to bear potential losses. Investments should only be made after thorough review with your investment advisor, considering all factors including personal goals, needs, and risk tolerance. Four Star is an SEC-registered investment advisor, maintains a principal business in the state of Illinois. The firm may only transact business in states in which it's notice filed or qualifies for a corresponding exemption from such requirements. For information about Four Star's registration status and business operations, please consult the firm's Form ADV disclosure documents, the most recent versions of which are available on the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov.